God, we thank you that even from birth you've called us to yourself. We thank you that your grace is sufficient this morning. Uh, we thank you that uh, we're together and we enjoy being together. We enjoy working through um, tough bits of doctrine because it, it displays for us your majesty and your grandness and your eternal power. And uh, there's a lot of mystery in what we're going to talk about today, but we go with what we know and what you've revealed to us, and you've been kind to tell us some things, if not everything. And that reminds us again that you're a God and we're not, and we are thankful for that, that we can trust you and be confident that all things work together according to your purpose in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. We are continuing our study of the doctrines of grace, commonly known as Calvinism. And again, I'm not, um, I'm not a scared of that title. I, I think it's a good historical label for what these doctrines are, even though Calvin would have objected uh, vociferously over uh, it being called after him. But... Anyway, we have, we've explored both the positive case and some of the common objections to two of the five points. We've gone over total depravity and uh, irresistible grace. And um, just for review, uh, I put some definitions in your handout. What we mean by total depravity or total inability is mainly that the very nature of man has been so affected by original sin that every part of his being is affected by evil. In other words, there is not a single part of man that has not been fatally infected by sin, including the body, the mind, the emotions, the conscience, and the will. We went through the positive case for that uh, several weeks ago and then also dealt with some objections and likewise on irresistible grace. What we mean by that, or it's also called effectual calling, is God's gracious work in which He, according to His eternal purpose and electing grace, powerfully subdues the sinner's rebellion, causing him to turn to Christ in genuine faith and earnest repentance. Um, so we started with first with what a fallen sinner brings to the table for his own salvation. Right? I bring nothing except my sin. And that's where we start. We then begin looking at the, the necessity of the work of God in the hearts of sinners. And when we began talking about irresistible grace, I told you that the reason that I'm a Calvinist is because I'm a Trinitarian. I believe that there are God is one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that each member, each person of the Trinity works together and in unity to bring about the salvation of sinners. And we started with kind of the experiential part of that, with total depravity. I think uh, for people that come to faith, they realize, I'm a sinner. I'm not right before God. I can't, I can't make myself right before God. And then I think everybody, in my experience, talking with people about this and my own, uh, we get that there, a change took place. A change had to take place. And that is by the Spirit. We, we, we call it irresistible grace. Um, the Spirit's role in our salvation is creative. He applies the work of the Son to the sinner according to the choosing of the Father. And so... Today, we're going to begin looking at the Father's role in our salvation, namely, unconditional election, His electing love for His people. And it's a dicey topic, uh, election. Some say they believe it. Some say it isn't taught in the Bible at all. That'll be fun. 
Uh, some say they always vote Republican. <laughs> Even so, election is one of the most controversial topics uh, in, in theology. And, and I realize that in teaching this, I'm walking a fine line. Um, some are new to this, and that's good. Uh, some know a, a whole lot about it already. Uh, and some are curious to hear more after hearing it a little already. So I, I do think it's important, important to give a lot of grace to those who are wrestling uh, with this issue. So what we mean by unconditional election. Unconditional election is the eternal, sovereign, unmerited, and immutable decree. Those are big words. Whereby, according to the wise counsel of his own will and for his own glory, he has selected for himself some individual sinners from among all mankind and of every nation to be redeemed and everlastingly saved to Christ. Let me read that again. Unconditional election is the eternal, sovereign, unmerited, and immutable decree of God, whereby according to the wise counsel of his own will and for his own glory, he has, he has selected for himself some individual sinners from among all mankind and of every nation to be redeemed and everlastingly saved by grace. Uh, I've been reading through the wisdom literature. My, my, I, every year I try to do some kind of targeted read through the Bible thing. And this year I'm doing the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Um, and I'm going through Job right now and I've just got to Elihu's speech. You know, the, the young guy who says, I've been quiet, you're ticking me off because all you guys are goofballs and I'm going to go. And he says, there's a phrase that he says, I was pinched off the clay just like you. In other words, I was formed by God. I was pinched off of... A, and that's the idea here in election. All of mankind is a lump of clay. And God carves out a fallen lump of clay. And God carves out a portion of that lump of clay to form into what Paul calls in Romans 9, vessels of mercy. If you want big picture, that's really what this is about. And the, and, the, and the stink over it is that it's not the whole lump that he's electing. And then we, the, the lump chooses to be vessels of mercy or not. You know, that's the, it's God's action, God's sovereignty, God's work in salvation. All right, so I've, I've had this section in each, of, each time we do the positive arguments for these points that it didn't start with Calvin. Calvin, 15, 1600s. Uh, Barnabas, 70 A.D. So here's what Barnabas says. We are elected to hope, committed by God unto faith, appointed to salvation. Arrhenius in 198 A.D. God hath, because they all list, God hath completed the number which he before determined with himself. All those who are written or ordained unto eternal life, being predestined, indeed, according to the love of the Father, that we would belong to him forever. Very clear doctrine of election uh, in the early church. Uh, Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to... Uh, 8380. Again, fun to say that. Here certainly there is no place for the vain argument of those who defend the foreknowledge of God against the grace of God and accordingly maintain that we were elected before the foundation of the world because God foreknew that we would be good, not that He Himself would make us good. 
This is not the language of him who said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Again, first 400 years, this doctrine clearly taught by the early church. Also, it's not foreign to Baptists. There's, again, big stink in Southern Baptist life right now over who's traditional, who's not, who's whatever. 1689, Second London Baptist Confession says it this way uh, in uh, Article 3, 5. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. So you've got clear uh, affirmation among Baptists in London who came over and, and those creeds were carried over in the American Baptist uh, denomination um, early on. All right. Any questions from uh, on that stuff? That's just kind of the background history, real quick overview of history. Any questions or statements on that? Any, any <coughs> questions on the definitions? Anything like that? <coughs> Okay, everybody's overwhelmed by the cuteness. All right, I get it. It's, it's all good. Um, some initial principles. Number one, God is sovereign. He's free to do what he wants with his stuff. So, he's king. God is king. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture is the kingdom of God, is the Christian life presented as a democracy. There's no um, ratification of God's uh, uh, propositions by the church, and then we get, he's king. And we don't like kings in our culture. We fought a war to get rid of a king. But that's not the way that scripture uh, presents God. He is king. He, in fact, he's not a king, he is the king. So, uh, all of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's Daniel 4.35, which incidentally was a statement by a pagan king about uh, the sovereignty of God. Remember, too, the uh, Matthew 20, 1 through 15, where Jesus gives a parable of the laborers in the field. <clears throat> he pays the guys early, 10 or 5 I don't know how you, whatever, to pays them, you know, 20 bucks. And then the next guy works a little bit less, but he also pays him 20 bucks. And the next guy, down to one, the last group works one hour and he pays them the same amount. And the guys who started at the beginning of the day and worked through the heat of the day get mad. Why, are, why aren't we paid more than these guys? And what, is the, what does the guy say, the, the, the uh, owner of the vineyard say? Can I do with what my own what I want? Can I show mercy to these guys who work the last bit of the day? If I want to, it's my stuff. That's the sovereignty of God in picture there by Jesus. Um, all right, point number two, God is righteous and always does what is right. Unlike King George, God's a good king. He always does what is right. Uh, Genesis 18.25, Abraham says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Appealing to the nature of God, knowing who he is, 
um, Abraham pleads for God to save Lot. Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. The character of God is always right and always righteous and always just. Uh, number three, God is under no obligation to save anyone. God is, let that sink in. He's not under obligation to save anyone. If the entire humanity is um, fallen and judge worthy by nature, uh, rebellion in rebellion against God, he's not under obligation to save any of us. Who are we to presume upon his grace? How dare you not save this person? The, it should be, why did you save me? Right? He's not under obligation to save anyone. If we're saved, it is by free, the free grace of God. Free in that it is without any cause in man. Grace in that it is unmerited favor. Of course, we, we point to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved. All right, point number four. Every person is by nature a rebel against God. It's the want to that's corrupted. Remember, we talked about that in total depravity. It's the want to that's corrupted. Uh, by nature, we don't want to come to Christ. We don't want to obey uh, His commands. Um, we don't want to come to His remedy for sin. We are unwilling and unable. You, and I listed there Romans 8, 7 and, and some others for, for your review. Point number five, sinners, not God, are responsible if they continue in sin and go to hell. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? If He created us, and He knows that we're fallen, or we will fall from, the, you know, from Adam, and yet we're still responsible for our sin, how do you account for that? Tough because you were talking about the clay, God pulling out parts of it and molding them into vessels of mercy. But he also molds some of the vessels of wrath, like all the stuff. Yeah. But um, logically, that's true. I guess the guilt is what the issue is. Like, God can't have guilt because, or uh, maybe not guilt, but um, I don't know what I'm looking for. But uh, we deserve hell if we're not in Christ because of our sin, but like God is holy and righteous perfectly, so he can't have any tarnished bit about him, so he can't be responsible for any sin that sends anyone to hell. There, this is where we hit the mystery of the thing, because we start with God creating a humanity that he knows will foreordains, <laughs> will fall, right? And then his plan is to carve portion, a portion of that humanity to save. And yet in doing all of this, he's right, he's just, he's good. And that hits us. That hits us wrong. But it's from the nature of man that the sin is happening. It's not from God. It's from our own heart that we're sinning, and so that's what's condemnable. condemnable. You remember uh, Peter's um, sermon in, uh, uh, after uh, the resurrection where he says, um, according to the, to the foreknowledge of God, you put to death the king of glory by the hands of lawless men. There's clearly a lawless man 
accusation and, and condemnation of, of, the, of the character of the people that put Christ to death. And yet it was according to the foreordained uh, plan of God. So this is where we, we where finite hits an infinite and, and, um, and it, it goes haywire. He created each man with conscience. He did. With knowledge. That's true. We sin willingly. We sin willingly. And we sin against the God we know. Romans 1, right? And yet, you have this, this tension of creator-creature distinction. How, how do we account for that? And we just trust that He's good. I mean, at this point, you have to trust that He's good. What people do in response to this, they feel this tension, and, and we don't like tension. We want to solve everything because we want to be God. Um, so what they'll do is they'll say, oh, but then there's, there's free will. Right. There's the there's the God is so so uh, he, you, you can't force love, you know, kind of thing. So there's free will. And it gets you in trouble doing that, because what happens is you say, you know, God foresaw the free will being exercised this way. So he created us. And, he, and that's what election is. He's foreseeing the, the free will thing. He still knows who's going to choose and who's not. Even, even taking that idea, he still knows who's going to choose and creates them anyway. How does that save God if, you, if you're trying to do that? So I think the, the proper thing is to do what Paul does. Oh, the depths, wisdom, riches of the, uh, of the knowledge of God. Who can know what he's doing? His ways are above us. And just to try, you, it comes down to trusting the nature and, and character of God that he's good. Uh, when you hit that responsibility um, issue. So Scripture teaches that, that sinners, not God, are responsible if they continue in sin and go to hell. Point number six is God, not man, is responsible if a man leaves his sin and goes to heaven. We're responsible. We bring to the table the sin and the, and the death warrant. God brings mercy and the means by which to satisfy divine justice and divine wrath. So that no human being might, be, might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31. Alright, some argue that, that there is no such thing as election in Scripture. Um, I've listed... Uh, in your notes, um, what we call in legal circles a string site, which is just a bunch of stuff that says, yeah, there is. So feel free to, to go through that. We're not going to go through all of that today. But for example, uh, let's look at um, yeah, 2 Timothy 2.10. says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of um, everybody's free will. No, for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And then one that we should all cling to, Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You can't read Scripture fairly and come away with the idea that there's no such thing as election. The word is used. It's used. You've got to deal with it. 
And so we've got several, several uh, passages in there. One that I love and one that we will spend some time on uh, in the future is uh, Titus 1, 1 through 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And the question that immediately arises is, promise to whom? Who's he promising that to? One, the angels, they're just looking on. Man hadn't been created yet, what Paul's talking about here. It's Jesus he's promising, and we're going to get into that, some of that as well, which is all kinds of fun. All right. So there's election. Some sort, some way, somehow that word is being used in Scripture. On what basis does he choose? And there are commonly three responses that are given to this question. One, it's an arbitrary choice. God does any, meeny, miny, mo. It's an arbitrary choice. It's a random and without reason. That's one option. That's how he usually operates. So. It seems to be that way. <laughs> eh, mountains. Yeah, there's no, there's no uh, fate outside of God. All right, so foreseen faith, works, or perseverance is the other option there. Foreseen faith. Because we're all, you know, given a measure of faith, the argument is, and therefore our awesomely awesome faith <laughs> saves us, uh, we give that back to God. The third option is, and I have it emboldened because that's the one I gravitate toward, holy and wise reasons known only to God. <laughs> Again, he's got them not. The, there's a creator-creature distinction there. He's got them not. Um, Ephesians 1 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ um, Ephesians 1 5 he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will that whole first chapter screams it's him not you um, uh, Jesus uh, uh, I thank you father Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding of the, and revealed them to little children yes father for such was your gracious will Matthew 11 25 through 26 election is according to the good pleasure of God's will and remember all of this start Ephesians 1 starts with it's because of the love of God Ephesians 2 because of the love of God that he chose his people. All right. There is no biblical support for the idea that election is based on what God foresaw. So God has the eye of Elandria or whatever that thing was called in Lord of the Rings. And he's looking into it, seeing who, who has the most awesomely awesome faith to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to choose. Nowhere in Scripture is the word foreknew used that way. Examples. Um, God knows of course, who's going to have faith, what works people will do, and who will persevere. But nowhere is such knowledge the basis of election. God chooses who's, not what's. He chooses people, not actions. Uh, Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That word foreknow, little, little Greek, uh, is progenosco. In English, it's used 
uh, more than a prior knowledge of facts. Genosko is the Greek <coughs> verb I know um, and is used of um, uh, Adam knowing Eve and that's just, hey baby, how you doing? That's, then we have Cain. So there's a very intimate knowledge there and I'll let for you, you guys in the college to figure that out. God's Love for Israel is also foreknowledge. You're, you're still going. Yeah, yeah. Well, go ahead. I was going to ask you, is, is it the same word that's, uh, I never knew you? As in whenever... I, I'd have to look, but I think it is. I'd have to, I'd have to verify. It, seem, it seems to, to fit. I, yeah. Yeah, it would make sense that that's the case. Um, God's love for Israel. You, you alone have I known among the nations. Really? He didn't know Babylon? Talk to him. He didn't, know, he didn't know the Philistines, talked about them. The knowledge is intimate. The knowledge used here is intimate. Knowledge. Um, of Christ, it said, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Um, again, the knowledge is intimate. God doesn't generally know about Jesus. He knows Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. He knows Him. Uh, so, God's choice of sinful rebels must have been based on His holy, wise, and sovereign pleasure. All right. That is generally the statement of God's electing grace. I, I think uh, a lot of times we spend um, mental energy arguing for it and not really dwelling on, um, not really savoring what that means. And so I want to go through here. What is election to? What is he choosing us unto? All right. So, uh, number one, it is eternal. It's eternal. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 3.11. When the scripture says to make your calling and election sure, the certainty that they're calling for, the certainty, I think, Paul, I think that's uh, Peter's uh, statement, the certainty he's calling for is not on God's end, it's on ours. Press in through assurance, right? Not, God's calling is certain. He's not changing. Our pressing in and, 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 uh, and working through being plagued with all the doubts that we have because of our ongoing sin, that's, that's the pressing in on making your calling election sure. Am I, do I have assurance? Um, and, that is a, and that is certainly a, a battle that we all have. God has no doubts about His purposes toward us. We're the ones with the doubts. All right, so it's eternal. It is sovereign. There's Matthew eleven twenty-five, 25, and then, of course, Romans 9. I put 15 through 18, but hey, the whole thing's good. Uh, and number three, it is unconditional. What do you mean by unconditional? It's not conditioned on me being awesome. I would fail. It's not conditioned on your awesomely awesome faith every moment of the day. You would fail. It's conditioned on God who makes choices. God's freedom is what we're, is what we're gaming for here. Uh, again, look at Deuteronomy 7, uh, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Again, the statement there is, he didn't love you because you're pretty. He didn't love you because you're smart. He doesn't love you because of your awesomely awesome faith. It's the most, um, it's the language of lovers. He loves you because he loves you. If I were to tell Tammy, I love you because you're shorter than me, or I love you because you have, you know, curly hair, well, when it all falls out, do you still love me, you know? It won't fall out. Uh, but if it did, do you still, if it's conditioned on the attribute, then you can fall out. But the certainty, the security that she has in our relationship is when I say, I love you because I love you, right? And that's what God is saying here to his people. I love you because it doesn't change. Um, it's irreversible. Number four, it's irreversible. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Hebrews 6.17. Number five, it is individual. It is individual. One of the objections we're going to look at is election is God corporately elects. He elects IBM. You know, and it's just that if you get into IBM, then you're elect. If you get into the church, you're elect. That's not what he's talking about. He talks about things very individualistically. Uh, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him? James 2.5. Uh, <laughs> a simple greeting by Paul at the end of Romans. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Rufus is not a company. Rufus is a person. No company would name themselves Rufus. Okay, anyway, those are just some hippie parents. Also, his mother who has been a mother to me as well. So very individual. And then, and then consider your calling brothers in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. And number six, it is for God's glory. It's for God's glory. Again, it goes back to who do we boast in? We boast in ourselves? My choices? I'm better than my relatives who haven't chosen Christ, even though we came from the same stuff? Or do I boast in God? In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. I love it whenever Emma and I were memorizing Ephesians together. She used to do this in kind of a Scottish brogue. It was great. She'd go, to the praise of His glorious grace. It was wonderful. She'd do this thing. It was great. I'd get her to do that for you sometime. It's a lot of fun. All right. What is our response to this? What is our response? At the end of Paul's discourse in, in Romans on the doctrine of election, we see a few of the responses that we should have to this great truth. Number one is worship. Number one is worship. Let me just read Paul's discussion there. We'll just read all of Romans. I'm kidding. Look at Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, exclamation point. <laughs> For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Our response to this is worship. How do you account for this? You can't. You can't account for this except for the sheer mercy of God. <coughs> Number two, holiness. 
should be our response. If you walk through at the end of this discussion in election in Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul's response to this, first worship, second holiness. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Romans 12 is not disconnected from Romans 11 or 10. Or Romans 12 is talking about our response to what came before. Because of God's unmerited mercy toward us, we should put off the sin we cling to. We're called to something. We've been shown mercy for something. When we have the stamp of Him on us, we are pressing to look a certain way with His stamp on us. Number three, humility. Look at verse three in, uh, in Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Response to election is humility. I, I am not worth any more than any one of you. I, I don't deserve God's grace any more than any one of you. I shouldn't think of myself more highly than, than any, any one of you. And that also translates to those who are outside the church. Who am I? So when we, go, when we talk about this, we've got to remember, we can't be, can't you read the Bible? Don't do that. This is a gracious doctrine. And it's one that should engender and cause great humility in us. And that's something we all have to strive for a lot. A lot. Um, number four, eager to serve the body of Christ. Look at Romans uh, 12, 4. It says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. Let us use them. Don't sit on your gift. Right? If we're called, if we're elected into the body of Christ, we're called and elected to, to serve the body, to love what Christ loved and died for, to serve the body. All right. Number five, be godly in relating to those outside the church. Romans 13, 8 through 14, submission to authorities. Whether Trump or Obama, whether a school board you didn't want to elect, <laughs> we're called to be in submission to it. This is how we relate to the outside world. Humble, serving, loving, imaging God who loved us while we were yet sinners, Christ dying for us. Number six, confidence in evangelism of the lost. I'm going to spend some time on this in a separate lesson, but if God has definitely chosen people to respond to the gospel and is definitely, and we'll get to with, with Christ's uh, death and atonement, has a definite atonement applied to people, there should never be a nosebleed when you're evangelizing people. You're either a savor of sweetness or you're a savor of death to them. And all you're called to do is be faithful. You can't flip a switch in the head. You can't do it. I've tried. It's, it's not possible. You can't flip a switch. God has to do that. So, 
our duty is to just be faithful in sharing the gospel. He loves sinners. He calls sinners just like you. Come to Christ. That's how we evangelize. Finally, uh, for our study this morning, we should remember the words of Jesus and rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Uh, Luke 10, 20. For everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Daniel 12, 1. Above all people on the planet Earth, we should be rejoicing. Doesn't mean we don't cry over things that are sad. Doesn't mean that we don't feel grief over losses. But ultimately, we should be a rejoicing people because of the unmerited grace of God shown on us. Um, anyway, all right, that is my monologue for this doctrine. Any questions, any, any uh, discussion further that you want to have? It is, uh, it's just 10.04. We've got at least 30 minutes, so. Again, I'm kidding. We have a little time, though, I think. Someone asked me if I believe in election, and they asked me why, and I just simply said, well, because God's omniscient and omnipotent. And you learn those things in Sunday school, but then, like, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, like, how can you... What can we have other than the election? If, if somebody is going to be saved, he knows it. And he if he's all-powerful, then he has something to do with it. Or everything. Yeah, I think it's a something or everything is, is where the fight is. Um, and, it, and again, it's, I don't think any of us disagree that he knows who's going to be saved. It's just why. Is it based on the, the, um, this <coughs> fanciful notion of free will, or is it based on his sovereign, yeah. his free will, I guess, is the other thing. If he knows who's going to be saved, if he's no, he knows who's not going to be saved. And if he knows that they're not going to be saved, why didn't he do something about it? Yeah. And then, you know, if his ultimate, if his ultimate um, desire is for everybody to go to heaven, then that means he's, he comes up short somewhere in his power. Right. How 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 sovereign is he? Yeah. I think the difficulty in this is we have no reference point here on earth for this doctrine. Everything that we do is based off of works. It's based off of judgment. It's based off of merit. Everything that we, for the most part. Yeah, I'm trying to think of something. I was going to say affirmative action, but I think you're right. There is a criteria there. <laughs> but I mean, I, I guess the one thing is. Um, the chil children born to parents, mm. uh, the parents choose to have a kid. Mm. They don't necessarily know what kid or can control what kid. They don't know if it's male or female. They don't know the personality. They don't. Uh, and if you're in England, in, in your, if you're in England, you can't even choose to keep them alive if you want to. So, um, anyway, yeah, we don't have a reference point for this, and and I think that that's an important point because we're not God. Exactly. Which brings us back to Paul's thing at the end of Romans 11. Yes. We can't. So again, we're, we're not sovereign. So this is understand. this is the mystery of it all, and Calvinists get hammered. Oh, you just appeal to mystery. Well, solve it for me, then, great well, Arminian. God's unique. <laughs> he is right. So, so like the way that he acts, you can't relate it to anything else because yeah. to be God, he has to be all powerful, yes. all knowing. Like he has to be these ultimate highest things. Yeah. To be now the state wants to be. 
but it just can't quite get there. God is God. He's unique. What are we going to compare him to, Isaiah says? Well, any, any other? Uh, yeah. As far as evangelism goes, um, well, it kind of my own salvation is not dependent on me. It's dependent on God's election. You can you get talking about being faithful and evangelizing. Um, Why do it if he's already called them? Well, is that where you're going, or am I stepping ahead? To our... uh, we can we gonna we can be confident in that it's not it's not on me. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the the nosebleed that's issue. Reason, that's all the more reason to put it out there. Yeah. Is there's not the. the the pressure of their salvation isn't resting on my shoulders. Right, right. So here's, and, and not only that, the relief of pressure, but the excitement in the, in the certainty of the mission. There's gold in them, their heels. I mean, the, it's take your pickaxe and go. I mean, he's he saved a people. He is saving them through your testimony, through the work of the Spirit, working through the means that he has established of how are they going to hear without a preacher? I mean, Paul goes into that whole thing in Romans 10. How are they going to hear? Faith without hearing. I mean, faith comes by hearing. How are they going to hear without a preacher? How are they going to hear a preacher unless someone is sent? That, that whole thing flows out of the doctrine of election. So to say that this kills evangelism is to misread Paul. Yeah. Also, uh, with, with Christ, after he talked with the well, he went to the apostles. He goes, I... The fields are white with the harvest. Yeah, run. Run to them. Grab your sickle and go. Yeah, what? What? There's a hymn? What? Uh, the, the other thing that's, um, I think, really neat here is if it's unconditional election, then we didn't choose it. We can't unchoose it. Yeah. So once we start seeing the fruit and we see the power of the word manifest itself right. in us or in someone else, there's a, a confidence like what Josh is talking about in us as well. That if we didn't choose it for us, we can't unchoose it. And and in those times, there's that when you see fruit that's encouraging, like whenever I'm kind, I know that's a total spirit rot thing, because in my flesh there's no good. Um, and in those times when you have the dip, you know, because we all hit that wall, we all hit the apathy wall that leads to rebellion in the heart, and we, and. But there's a you get to a point. Was I ever saved? And all this doubt stuff comes in. We trust in His Word, and the promise says, "I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. I'm I'm with you in the midst of your sin. I'm with you. I'm going to pull you out, Peter. I've given you over to Satan to test you. You're going to fail the test, but be encouraged. I've prayed for you, and when you come back, encourage your brothers. Encourage them what? Look, he's not going to let us go. Right? And what does the author of Hebrews, <clears throat> Apollos, tell us? He tells us that our high priest ever lives to intercede for us. The prayer that he prayed for Peter, he's praying for you. Right? And it's because of this sovereign choosing. It's because of the work of the Spirit and the heart in you, because of the sovereign choosing, at the direction and choosing of God. It's because of the atonement applied, which we'll get there, to you by the death of Christ. 
It's an amazing thing. And the perseverance, all three persons of the Trinity are working for your perseverance. What great comfort is that? When you come back, encourage your brothers. He ever lives to intercede for us. I, to me, that, from my own heart, that rocked my world. Because I lived in this, am I saved, am I not saved, am I saved, am I not saved, thing for so many years, decades, of just this absolute panic, fear, of have I, have I gone too far? Have I got, this calmed my soul. And I, and, 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 and I still wrestle with that old groove of the heart, but I come back to this, what he's promised, what he said. That's why it's important for us. It's not, just, it's not just wine and cheese in an ivory tower doctrine. This is, this is gritty stuff on how we're saved and how we stay there, how he keeps us kept. Yeah. We're going to sing a song uh, this morning called He Will Hold Me Fast. Mm. And so you talk about resting in that security of him who chose us. Yeah. It's got some really good Yeah, we don't hold him, he holds us. Like the question isn't, am I saved? Is, is God faithful? And is He who He says He is? Mm -hmm. And like, if you just believe that, then like, yeah. that, that's confidence. All right. It is, uh, it is 10 15. So we only have 15 more minutes. <laughs> but nevertheless, I will pray because I know that the mind can only absorb what the behind can endure. So we're going to move on. God, how do we respond to this? Your faithfulness, your loyalty, your unmerited favor to those who still wrestle with rebellion in the heart. Thank you that you don't change, that your mercies are new every morning, and that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. So, Father, in that, teach us to repent often and to cling to the cross and to reflect your goodness to those around us, to reflect your mercy to those around us. God, don't ever let us be bashful about the free grace of God. Teach us to speak quickly about the mercies of Christ the beauties of Christ, the need for repentance. Help us to sharpen uh, the means of uh, conversion that you've given us for others. Help us to, to learn um, to speak clearly and boldly and effectively, knowing that we can't switch, uh, switch, flip the switch in somebody's head. That is, a, that is a work of the Spirit. But we want to be good stewards of what you've given us, this grace um, and this ambassadorship that you've given us to, uh, to, the, to the kingdom of Christ. Lord, would you show fruit in that for us as we begin, as we continue in some cases, to pray for those who are lost, to, to, um, to have discussions about the status of someone's soul, uh, that, that you would bear fruit there. Encourage us, we pray, in that way, that, that you are moving and working among people to draw them to Jesus. We thank you that you did that to us. We pray that you would do that for those um, with, with whom we come in contact. 
God, as we go into the main service today, help us to rejoice. Help us to worship. Remind us again and again of the great glory of your mercy operating in the heart of your people. We thank you for all these things. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for setting me straight. What's up? Thank you. Thank you.